Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Hello. Many of us wonder what it means to be a mature disciple of Christ. How do we develop maturity in ourselves and others? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. My name is Jeff Holsclaw, and this is the Being With Podcast, a podcast all about neuroscience and faith, how we can live with ourselves, live with others, and live with God. And it's brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which seeks to grow faith in everyday people. Today we're uh, talking with Jim Wilder. And there he is. Welcome to the show, Jim. Jim is a clinical psychologist and a neurotheologian, which I want to ask you more about. I think that's so cool. He is uh, partnering with, he kind of started Life Model Works. He's an author, an international speaker who develops ways to apply brain science and Christian practices of discipleship to draw others into the life and the transformation of Christ. Thank you so much for being here with us today looking forward to your time with you right here yeah yeah well your uh your work has been incredibly influential in my personal life um sid who's my wife she had gotten connected to emmanuel prayer and different things that i know that you've been a part of for a long time and just the talking of relational circuits and all these types of things it's been super great uh, sent us on a long journey uh you actually endorsed the book that sid and i wrote uh, and we kind of took the biblical kind of theology of god's presence and joy i've been using that in, as i teach in theology classes and things like that so thank you so much for your work and thank you for being on today well, it's good to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's fun to be curious about God and what he's trying to teach us. And so we enter into the, you know, this vast expanse of what God has done. And with some curiosity, it, it turns out to be an interesting trip. Well, that's that's kind of the lesson I think I've been learning from you for a long time is that the ancient wisdom in the Bible seems to be now confirmed over and over again by the things people are learning in neuroscience, which is pretty neat. Uh, but the topic today, primarily, and this will launch us into a couple different things. You did write a book recently called Renovated God, Dallas Willard, and the Church That Transforms. We're kind of going to bounce around talking about that a little bit. But I know uh, people you know, who take their faith seriously want to grow in Christ. They want to grow in maturity. But a lot of times they hit barriers and obstacles. And so you spend a lot of time both clinically, pastorally, and as a researcher and as a speaker trying to think through what does it mean to be a mature Christian? And I know lots of people have lots of answers. So maybe start off with some of the bad answers that maybe haven't helped people in the past and then kind of move into some of the things that you and the people you've been running with for uh, you know 20 plus years and, and Dallas Willard, of course, have kind of found to be a better way. 
Yeah, well, for a long time, I used to sort of torment pastors and, and Christian leaders by asking them what maturity was. And, uh, you know, they usually gave what I would call is the Sunday school answer. And that is a mature person is someone who prays, goes to church regularly and uh, will read their Bible. And if you're doing those things, you must be a mature Christian. So I would then ask them, what's the difference between that and being a mature person? Uh, and, you know, actually very little thought had been given by any of the Christians that I had talked to about what meant to be a mature person. So sure. um, the, there was like no connection with it at all. And that's really where Dallas Willard and I ended up uh, kind of working together, kind of from different sides of the same mountain. Like, okay, he's trying to figure out how to create mature Christians. And I'm trying to figure out how you create mature people. And there's got to be an overlap between the two of them, right? Is Are they two separate beasts or are they they one? And for most people I talk to, they're com two completely different things. You could be completely terrible at your relationships and uh, provided that you had a lot of Bible knowledge and maybe even a theological degree, well, you are a mature Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, but you treated people terribly. And so, you know, th this just didn't work for either Dallas or I. Yeah, so you could do a lot of stuff for the church, and you could mm -hmm. know a lot of stuff about the Bible or theology, but that doesn't mean that your character is being conformed to Christ and that your relationships are reflecting that kind of maturity, the maturity that you know you see in the fruit of the Spirit and things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, you make a distinction in one of your earlier books between redemption and maturity and how there's the work of God— and then there's our work. And I think this kind of gets at this maturity question too. So what is what is the difference between you know what a lot of you know Christians would think of redemption or salvation as kind of God's work and God's grace invading? But then also, do we have a responsibility in all this? Well, uh, there are some things that only God can do. So the best we can say about our our responsibility is to receive it. Right. Uh, uh, there's some things God expects us to do. And those are the things that human beings are supposed to be about. You know, supposed to, you know, be able to take care of our family, our economics, our our planet, or raise our children. Um, one thing I quickly noticed, and most people collaborated, is that it was not unusual for uh, Christians to have um, unchristian friends who are considerably more mature relationally and emotionally than they were. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and then uh, you look at Paul saying, uh, you know, you, to the young churches, I want you to appoint elders. Now, these elders are supposed to be mature. They're supposed to raise their children in certain ways and be uh, not given to drink and have a good reputation in the community. But you realize these people just became Christians in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Most of that maturing happened before they were Christians. Mm. Uh, and so you realize, no, there's something human we're supposed to be about that even a good pagan can do. Uh, and and maybe what's expected from Christian is to take that and go farther as opposed to ignore it and, and um, just try to be experts in spiritual knowledge. Right. And I think in the Western tradition of the church, we're so we downplay the reality our embodied lived social reality. And we just want to talk about spiritual realities and things in the Bible. 
But so someone like me kind of came out of, you know, Bible Baptist, pretty conservative upbringing in California. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in my late teens, early college kind of years, I discovered Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and kind of the spiritual formation, uh, which isn't just about like, you know, tithing or serving at the church and knowing stuff. It's about practicing what is prayer, what is fasting, what is meditating on the scripture and these types of things. And I know for myself, that kind of bore good fruit for a while. And then it seemed to, to tail off. And I think uh, you have a lot of experience with that kind of uh, question. And that's where you were in dialogue with Dallas Willard is um, how and why do spiritual formation practices that kind of the ancient traditions of the church, why do they help some people and then not others at all? Or why do they help some people for a little while, but then they kind of stop working? Yeah, the that was the question we had going into it because uh, sometimes it was extremely fruitful and sometimes it was uh, fruitful for a while. Uh, and what we found was that people with a lot of trauma background, it didn't seem to work for at all. Mm. So this, you know, we're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, why is it that some people really benefit so enormously? Um, and in that we basically decided then about um, 20, uh, 10, about 10 years ago, that we were going to do a conference together and see if we couldn't uh, overlap uh, the, the two fields. Mm -hmm. And say, here's, here's what it means. Now, um, when he was looking at the spiritual disciplines, they're in one way primarily things that make room for God to be there. He, Dallas makes it very clear that spiritual disciplines have no spiritual value in themselves. They make room for things with spiritual value. Mm -hmm. So when you're, you're fasting, you're making room. When you're, uh, you're quieting, you're making room. When you're, you know, all these things make room from the things that normally take over our brains and uh, let God be there. Now, what happens when you make room for God and this has uh, been largely missing from theology, is that God starts growing a new creation there. Mm -hmm. Well, now, there's some ingredients that have to go into growing a new creation. You have to be able to um, understand uh, what God's thinking. You have to be able to uh, uh, form an attachment with God and with other people. And it turns out that people with a big trauma load um, didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. So when they tried to connect with God, they did not make a connection with anybody. And John makes it pretty clear. If you can't love your brother, you can see how are you going to love a God you can't see. You know, the, the basic skills are needed to move on to a higher, uh, you know, a more expansive way of, of relating to God the way we would relate to others. And so there's a, there's a huge overlap. Mm -hmm. um, part of it is the human task. We're commissioned to do certain things, and we're expected to do that. Uh, that's why you can't just leave your, leave your baby out on a rock and pray that God will feed it and raise it. You know, it's like, no, that isn't going to work. The baby will die. You have to take care of it because there's some basic human responsibilities. Now, right. on the other hand, if you want to show that baby uh, who God is really creating inside of them that has never existed up until now, 
you're not going to be able to do that without God's Spirit coming along and saying, hey, I, I want to show you some things that you do not yet know and see. And so when you put these two things together, there should be some kind of uh, uh, really happy transformation going on. And, and that's what we've all been pushing for, that spiritual mature, maturity. Um, well, you asked me about that word to begin with. So let me quick, <laughs> yeah. quick, quickly say, maturity is being all you were meant to be at this stage. Okay. So yeah. a mature uh, apple blossom looks like an apple blossom in every respect. A mature uh, baby apple and a mature ripe apple, they all look different, right? Uh, so maturity means that how you're supposed to develop to this point matches where you actually are. And if the development is off, then we've got a problem with maturity. So that immediately asks the question, what should we be looking like at any stage in life? And so that was where we started. You know, what would a mature Christian look like? Let's suppose we take all of the things that the world, um, Satan and uh, um, the flesh, got wrong and mm -hmm. we we said now what would you look like if you were four years old and you were spiritually mature would that look different than 40 years old and spiritually mature and the, the immediate answer is yes it would look different uh, would it look different than 80 well it should but what would be the differences and what are you supposed to put in place as you go along that's what's generally missing from the conversation about maturity sort of like well Maybe if I just ask God to, uh, you know, take my life, um, then everything that's missing will automatically show up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you said you had a conservative background. Um, <laughs> helps. Would you say that reading the Bible is important? Absolutely. Of course. Okay. Can you do that without learning to read? No. All right. When you became saved or even when... Um, you know, you're filled with the Spirit. Could you read the original Hebrew and Greek without mm -hmm. having learned it? No. no. Although being raised in California and their educational system, I didn't understand anything about language till I learned he Hebrew and Greek. And then I was like, oh, this is how like, English works too? So that helped me on both sides. Yeah. Well, yeah, very, so there's, very good. Mm -hmm. There are these human capacities or capabilities that need to develop in a certain time frame yep. that are necessary um, for spiritual development also to occur, mm -hmm. and that those two things kind of fit together. And I want to get to um, the kind of positive, well, how do we kind of grow these relational capacities? But someone asked, someone, a couple of people are watching live um, right now, and someone asked about this question of trauma, because you can have uh, developmental traumas where you kind of miss the um, the growth at a particular stage. And as you've talked in a couple of places, then those kind of things um, stay with you and not just you, right. But a lot of psychologists and other child, you know, developmental um, kind of experts, those things will kind of stay with you. Uh, but I think the thing that you're trying to suggest is, yeah. And those things will affect how we understand who God is, how God is relating to us. So are there a couple different, and we don't have this to be a huge topic, but are there a couple diff different kind of, when things are missed, what kind of happens to us as adults? If there's developmental traumas or even personal adult traumas, like what, what ends up being the effects? We just want to fill out that picture a little bit and then move into the positive kind of spot. Sure. Well, there's we separate traumas into two kinds. One is when you deprive somebody of what they needed in order to grow. Um, 
so I, I had a friend, uh, I grew up in South America, uh, up in the Andes, and a friend who didn't get any calcium growing up. And I remember one time we were running and he fell and his arm folded up like a Z. The brown, bones didn't break. They just folded because there was no calcium in them, really. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and so you look at that and go, you know, he's got to get calcium before those bones get uh, get strong again. And, uh, you know, so there's things that are weaknesses that we have, and we're deprived of the things we need. It'll always produce a weakness. And, and then the most common things to be deprived of is a sense of joy, that people actually are glad to be with you and that you have value without doing anything. When you miss that, you just start to wonder, can God like me or can anyone else like me or do I have to perform or, um, you know, have I put on too weight or not not enough or, you know, whatever it is that we think will make people like us and we'll spend our lives sweating that one. But when something bad happens to you and it traumatizes you, some area of your life stops growing. So going back to the bone example, if you broke your arm, and all the other kids your age took piano lessons, when your arm healed, would you be able to play piano like they do? Or would you have to start learning piano now that your arm is back again? And so what happens, let's say you're traumatized by men, you mm -hmm. may stop developing your relationships with men. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if it traumas later healed, your relational skill, how do I relate with and understand men and and get along with them well hasn't grown you've got to start growing it later on uh in order to catch up mm. yeah so that first the first one that you kind of talked about not having joy ends up creating i think what you call like a like those attachment you know uh uh attachment pain i, I think what yes. you're talking about is that right yeah, so what right. Mm -hmm. what are other kind of like the deep abiding attachment pains that people kind of bring with them throughout their life well, the, the kind of the two classic ones is that you feel lonely most of the time down inside. Like if you really knew who I was, uh, you wouldn't like me. Um, and uh, the other one is a real sense that my performance is going to prove, uh, provide my worth. So I'm never secure with who I am. I always have to be doing something or looking better. It's, a, it's this continual comparison with other people, hoping that I rate better uh, so somebody will like me. Mm. And that's a very insecure way to, to live. Right. So you could have very successful people mm. uh, who are, still have that attachment wound that kind of affects everything. You could have uh, – so these things don't – they're not just – you know, the people that are down and out, you know, these affect all sorts of different people. Yeah. Um, so high performers are definitely on that profile. And I think, so speaking of high performers, you know, and I, you know, I don't know if I'm a high performer, but I'm more on the achievement side, you know, finding my worth in my performance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where spiritual um, kind of practices can come in is that it's like, Oh, it's a new thing to do. Like, so instead of just reading my Bible and having a devotional time and praying, like what I need to do is pray the hours or, um, you know, fast, you know, all these types of things. It's something I can achieve at, which might have some short term growth, but then, uh, that thing within me, that inner drive, that attachment wound or a pain or the developmental stage that I missed kind of cut still comes back and gets me. So you've noticed this in your clinical practice um, as well as kind of other people, leaders you've been talking to. And so 
I know you affirm the necessity of spiritual disciplines, but you've also kind of been uh, working with people like Chris Corsi and others to develop like relational exercises. Now, what is the purpose of developing things like relational exercises for us? Like what does it do to our brains and to our, our life? It's, uh, they're a little bit like calisthenics preparing you for sports. There are certain things you have to be able to do fast enough uh, in order to be able to uh, do it in real time. And our, our objective with God is always to live in connection with God in real time. So if the only way we can connect with God is go away for uh, you know three days in the mountains uh, of solitude by ourselves, which, by the way, is better than not doing it at all, Mm-hmm. But if that's the only place you can connect with God, when you're in the subway or in the fight with your uh, spouse or something like that, how are you going to do it then, which is when we really need it? So these calisthenics, you might say, are the, the relational skills. How do we get my mind to be able to rapidly answer the question, what is God thinking right now? And what is it like me to do when I'm doing, you know, the... Ephesians 2.10, the good works that God prepared ahead of time for us to to walk in them. Uh, you know, that, if we're not well trained, uh, it'll take us a good time of cooling down, going away, trying to figure it all out. And uh, But we want to live in real time. So that's, these skills basically help us with that. Because mm. the brain has to learn how to do that, how, has to learn to recognize God's voice compared to all the other noise that runs through your head. Which one, which thought came from God and which one didn't? Well, if you're not paying attention, if you haven't learned, now the spiritual disciplines will make some room for that to happen. Because if you're always on your cell phone, you'll never learn, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So make some room, but then in that room, what's going to grow? This is the two things that that we keep trying to put together, learn, learn some relational skills, learn to uh, uh, start to build up a library. I had a very interesting counselor that I was a supervisor for many years. And uh, she said, you know, the first year I was doing counseling, God told me what to do and what to say. And I had no idea what I was doing or saying, but God got good results. (laughs) The, The second year, she said, God didn't tell me all those things anymore. He expected me to know them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now he was showing me some new things, but we're, we're actually learning beings, you know, and, and so we, we accumulate. And as we get, as we learn, we actually get faster and, and able to do things under more and more difficult conditions. That's, that's what maturity is basically is tested by. Can I still be the same person with the same relationship with God and others when the pressure gets on me? Mm-hmm. Right. And so when we talk about like disciplines or exercises, I think of either learning music or practicing a sport. So when you're learning an instrument, you learn the scales, Mm -hmm. uh, you learn other music. Uh, But then, you know, growing up, you know, I played the trumpet and there'd be these competitions and then there'd be sight reading competitions where the music would just be placed in front of you and learning other music really well, which is imitating and learning from others, uh, mm-hmm. as well as learning the basics of your instrument and multiple scales. It helps you in the moment know how to play that music sight read. And the same thing with sports is you practice, you exercise physically, but you also practice with other team members. Maybe you're practicing plays depending on the sport, mm-hmm. but you're learning the basics so that when you're in the game, you can make in-person kind of decisions. So 
And you're talking about living in, in real time or doing things rapidly, but there is something happening in our brains. And so you've been talking about a little bit about fast track or slow track in some of your books. Some people talk about right brain, left brain. I know there's like a lot of real technical questions about those things, but could you talk about those different speeds? Like our minds do work at different speeds. And so the goal is to move from one speed, which is kind of slow where I say something and then I regret it to the fast speed where, oh, I kind of only say what I, I mean to say. Could you fill that out a little bit? Yeah, this is to me what really made the big difference and probably the the main point in the book that I was writing about with Dallas Willard. And that is that your identity, which includes your spontaneous responses to, to things, develops in the fast track of your brain that runs faster than conscious thought. And it develops in response to joy, the people that are glad to be with me and form an attachment with me. So it's like there's a, a, a firewall in your brain. My identity is behind that firewall. And if you're not one of my people, you can't change who I am. Mm-hmm. So we have to have a, this attachment going. In, and then the attachment basically helps me develop a sense of what you're thinking without you having to say it. So we can actually think together. You know, uh, that's how children learn languages. That's how they learn to become human. They grow up looking at these beings that don't make a whole lot of sense to them and going, they must be thinking something. What is it? Uh, oh, I can think that too, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, your children will, will often look at parents and go like, don't you two get your get each other? You know, like the, the children can understand why the, both sides with their parents fighting and don't get it why the parents don't, you know, understand one another, uh, you know, because it's like, well, no, I, I know what's going on in their minds. Can't you get it right there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the reasons why children are often much more mystified about divorces than, uh, than their parents were. But uh, this kind of being able to understand other people's mind and, and think with them happens in this fast track. It happens faster than conscious thought. Then uh, it, it, the fa- fast track answers the question, what is it like me and my people to do? And as long as we have the answer to that, oh, we handle this problem this way, we do this, we, you know, this is how we live and how we act, um, then we can go about, um, you know, focusing in on details using the slow track. The problem is that we put most of our Christianity into our slow track. And teaching, sermons, books. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, we used to have a um, anger management class and everybody that, they came in from the churches. Everybody who came in knew all the verses about anger and what they should do. <laughs> the only problem was that anger happened before they thought of the verse. Now, right. This is the sequence. And, and that's, that's how the brain runs. The fast circuit always runs faster. And it gives you, what did I learn from the people that I considered my people? I'll do that first, react mm-hmm. that way first. Uh, and so the real question then, I think, in terms of, character and maturity is how do we get Jesus to be one of our people? Mm-hmm. How do we form a strong enough attachment to him that being who he would he would be and who he would like and what he brings joy about us with him is our first response. And then our conscious mind can think about that, reflect on it later. And, and that's, the again, the problem with the spiritual disciplines, that they all run at conscious speed. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that's important, though, is that all of our strategies that run at conscious speed, 
Mm -hmm. So if we want a strategy to get God into our lives, we're going to have to have some conscious speed process that's too slow to really change our character, but let God in and mm -hmm. make room for it. Now, if our, our conscious speed strategy is actually a bad one, um, you know, it won't actually help us. But if we don't have a strategy, we won't ever correct either. So that's, again, you know, the field that I'm interested in neurotheology is how do we put the things that we understand together with the things that God is trying to do? And, and if you put those match together right, you should get some amazing results. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, I want to ask you just about what you mean by neurotheology in a second, but I just want to sum up what you were just saying and see if I got this right, because this was the super helpful part, um, and I'll just kind of put this up for those on the video. This is uh, renovated, um, is you, you talked about identity uh, being in that fast track and being connected with joy and pictures, really images of my people in action and how they respond. And that I just spontaneously act the way I saw them act. And so my identity, joy, and my people are all grouped together. And in one sense, character is just my identity in action through that fast track. Uh, and a lot of times, um, you know, we're mystified by the ways we've acted. And you can just kind of go back to, well, you know, what do my people, you know, were they my parents, my siblings, kind of my extended family, the schools I was raised in or, or whatever. Um, and so your character, and that was really revolutionary is that my character is that fast tracked, quickly, rapidly responding part of me. Mm -hmm. um, and so often, I think, whether it's in churches or in personal life, we try to have people change by shaming them for bad behavior um, and excluding them from fellowship until they've changed that bad behavior. And really that's not going to get any results. It, am I right? Instead, we need to be delighting in them, uh, giving them grace. Maybe that's even undeserved the way God gives to us and inviting them in and imitating for them new ways of living. That's what I need. And that's what other people need. And so we kind of need better churches too, right? Not just better, better people. Well, our, our, our churches really have been built pretty much on the, uh, the model coming out of the enlightenment. And that is if we believe the right things, it should make us uh, respond the right way. And mm -hmm. so we've, we've tuned up our beliefs very, very nicely. And we're constantly ir irritated because they, they're not actually getting the response that they're supposed to be. And what Dallas Willard used to call uh, sin management. We, we manage our sin, our first reaction. So it doesn't come out and look as bad as it should, but the first reaction doesn't seem to shift very much. Uh, and and that's where the you know the character has to be put into the fast track, uh, so we don't just spend all our time doing that, and uh, and then we end up uh, very you know well human beings have this little circuit in there that the as if circuit, and they learn right. about eighteen months of age that you get better results out of other people is if I act differently than I actually feel. So I can act like I'm more friendly than I'm feeling inside and I'll get better results. And so we, we create this as if person and, and it gets very Christian. Right. Right. Because we know how, what to look like at church. And sometimes our as if person looks rather differently at work or with friends or other places, uh, you know, very often at home, uh, which is one, you know, it, it gave me a career full of work, really, because I had all the children of Christian leaders coming in and going, well, I know what they say, but I also know how they live at home. 
uh, and the, the contrast uh, was very discouraging to the children. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it wasn't that their parents didn't know their scripture, weren't great leaders, you know, uh, on all of that. The whole thing was they had never, their strategies didn't put their Christianity in an attachment frame. They were not really connecting with the God, with God uh, at that level. Uh, so it wasn't getting past the firewall. And everyone was frustrated. The parents were too. I mean, it's not like they sure. want to be living that way. They just most Christians have no no better way of doing it. Yeah, well, we've been kind of stuck in that enlightenment framework that better thinking will make for better choices, which will make for better actions. And you talk about this. Um, it was I, the title of the book is escaping me. You wrote it with uh, Dr. Warner the. Yeah, the solution of choice. The solution of choice, right. Okay. So, but instead, there's more going on than just better thoughts makes better for choices, better better doing. There's the, the, the feeling, the delight component. There's the social identity, my people component. That'll lead to mm-hmm. better acting. Well, man, I have like so many other questions and things. Um, you've written quite a bit on narcissism um, and how that has affected the church, as well as enemy love and how these are two kind of big shortcomings in the church, you know, if you're up for it, uh, and I'm sure the listeners will love it. Uh, anyway, I'd love to have you on another time just to kind of do a deep dive on one of those particular kind of topics. As we kind of start this show, I wanted these kind of more high level conversations about how our brain works and how it connects with maturity and discipleship, but maybe we'll have you on again. I'd love to come back. And, uh, I think you, you might be having one of my co-authors on and discussing that question of, shaming people and narcissism and how do we go about uh you know the odd odd thing is you have to have a little shame in the mix or it doesn't work but shame becomes toxic when it doesn't lead to discovering who our real self is we're just told you know what's wrong with us and so um you know this is this is really kind of a, a fun part of christianity if it's about discovering who god meant us to be not just about trying to repress all the things that we don't like about ourselves. And once you do that, you realize, you know, there's something in me that God actually likes. And uh, I think you've written the book. (laughs) Thanks for plugging my book. I was like, my my wife and I wrote a book about that. Does God really like me? And the short answer is yes, he does. Mm -hmm. Well, so just because I am a big nerd, I know you're a big research person. So if I could just put my academic hat on instead of my pastoral one, what do you mean by neurotheology? Or when you call yourself a neurotheologian, I have another friend in uh, London who uh, he and I are doing this kind of neurotheology research program. Um, But I'd love to know what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. Well, um, when I got into psychology back in in the 70s, uh, it, Christian psychology was what was called eclectic. And that is you just borrow a little bit from anybody that happens to work for you and we'll patch it all together. But if you're trying to raise children, you patch together one thing. If you're trying to deal with deliverance and demonic things, you patch together something else. If you're trying to deal with education or church planting or brain uh, tumors, you know, it was completely different bunch of stuff, you know, but in every case, the objective was the same. If you're trying to plant churches or you're trying to raise children or you're trying to deal with a brain tumor or decide what people need for medication, you're trying to get a human being to act the way a human being is supposed to act. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, we were, you know, said, how do we get past having a thousand different models depending on whatever the problem is? And the inter- the answer should be at the intersection of how does the the brain and body actually work if it was created by God, and the instruction that God gives of how we should live. Mm-hmm. Uh, those should match a hundred percent all the way down the line, right? So, well, if you, God, so. you would think so, yes. Or, or otherwise, God is a really stupid designer, like all you can come down to. And right. Dallas always thought Dallas, that God was probably pretty smart. So, uh, if you then put the two of them together and they don't match, when they match, it's like, wow, this is great. Oh, look at this. Turns out, you know, I read about science of joy and I went, does the Bible say anything about joy? You know, I hadn't paid any attention. Went back and says, it's everywhere. It's like, okay, well, that's good. Does it say anything about love and attachment? Oh, look at that. It's everywhere. Does it say anything about getting rid of fear? The brain doesn't do well with fear. Oh, look at that. Perfect or mature love, teleos love casts out fear. Oh, say these things are matching up. Very exciting. But what happens where it doesn't match? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where the neurotheology turns into a study because it could be that we haven't understood the brain properly. Okay. Or it could be that we haven't read the scriptures properly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I'm sure you as a, a pastor have frequently approached the scripture and realized when I look into it, it's actually saying something different than I thought it did when I first read it. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it, it sometimes opens up scripture and we go, wow, that scripture is saying a lot more than we thought. And sometimes we're thinking, you know, there's, there's a mistake in how we're doing our brain science here uh, because it's not really lining up with uh, uh, what we're reading from God. And, and, you know, brain science can be done wrong, too. So putting those two things together, it's a fun field. It's been going yeah. since about the year 400. Yep. Yeah, you have a lot of monastics and the spiritual writers, and the, like, when you, that's the other kind of fun thing is once you start learning all the the neuroscience and interpersonal neurobiology, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. then you start reading all the devotional classics. You're like, I think they were really un-. like. Uh, so my wife and I uh, are going through Ignatius of Loyola's um, spiritual exercises, and just the way that he encourages the use of the imagination and all these kinds of things and the things. And it's just like, well, you know, he was really. He was getting a lot of this right as far as how the brain works, but they're just figuring it out, you know, based on their own experience and observation rather than, you know, different kind of probing their, of the brain. Their science was a little weak in terms of some things, but they were extremely good observers, which is mm-hmm. what you need for science as well. You know, it's like, <clears throat> let's have a very close look at how this is actually impacting me. And if it isn't, we need to make some adjustments and, and, uh, Loyola was, um, um, he was a first-class narcissist and fairly sociopathic, and he he wanted to see God change his personality, and he was determined to find out how that was going to happen. And, uh, you know, it swung around something that most modern psychology says is untreatable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, no, you look at it, and he, he did it. So there's a lot to learn there. Yeah, even the the progression of the exercises, you just kind of go, that actually developmentally even fits for a lot of people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The way it starts with the love and affection of God, and then only after that do you confess your sins, and only after, you know, it's it's just like, that actually fits. So, well, good. Well, you know, answer my email. I'll definitely be trying to get you on again sometime. Thank you so much, uh, 
Dr. Wilder, for your time. Uh, there's been several people commenting and already engaging um, that someone already said they're going to share this to their whole district. So thank you so much for that, the district clergy page. And Thank you. Um, and we'll just kind of keep trying to have our identity and character conform to Christ. And that's what this podcast is doing. So thanks for that definition of neurotheology. That's kind of exactly what we're trying to do here. Looking forward to talking with you and seeing what else you come up with. Excellent. Well, to all of you, uh, we will hopefully be posting again uh, next week and we will see you soon.